great joy that we continue to walk through the book of Ephesians this morning. The text that we will be uh, looking at is Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 through the end of chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, But before we uh, read the word, would you pray with me? Father, our hearts are now before you, our minds also before you. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word. By your Holy Spirit, would you minister to us this morning? And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As Dr. David said, the theme of the, <coughs> of the service is spiritual maturity. And the title of the message this morning, as we, as we look at this text, is Power Through Prayer. And as we... Uh, prepare to to walk through this text, I, I was thinking about this issue of maturity, spiritual maturity. We, we all know that spiritual maturity takes time to develop in our life, just as physical maturity takes time to develop. That is to say that maturity is a process, right? We, we don't just overnight become mature adults. Uh, we don't overnight, our kids don't overnight grow out of the teen years and become mature adults thinking reasonably or grow out of the, uh, the younger years where, where everything is about me, 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 right? It, it, it takes time that we would train. And, and, and even as adults, I think about the parallel here, that as adults we would train our children in the ways of godliness, teaching them how to walk according to God's ways, how to live for the glory of God. And so this prayerfully brings them up into spiritual maturity as we teach them and lead them. Well, Paul says one of the great necessities, one of the necessities for spiritual maturity is prayer. And Paul models for us in verses 14 through 21 in chapter 3 here, what this prayer looks like as he's praying for really the maturity of the believers of the church there in Ephesus. I think one of the truths that we'll see today, hopefully the main overarching truth that we'll see today, is this. Divine empowerment is essential if the church is to carry out God's mission of exemplifying the love of Christ to the world. You see, this is God's desire for the church. That the church would exemplify Christ's love to the world. And in order to do that, what Paul knows is that the church must be empowered by God if we're going to be on accomplishing this mission because this mission is a really radical mission and if you think about it think about where where we've come from in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 already Christ God the son has stepped down in flesh he has walked this earth he has given his life and we've been preaching about the cross of Christ we've seen how Christ has given his life in order To save all who would come and believe upon him. And so we see the hope of the gospel is that Jesus Christ himself has died to give us life. And by doing so, he he has made what's called the new humanity. He has created us new in Christ. And all who are in Christ now have been given this new nature. And so this this is radical. This is incredible that Christ would die in order to give us life. And in order to love in this same way that Christ loved us, 
it will take a divine empowerment from God in order that we might live in a way consistent with this kind of love. And so beginning in verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3, I want to invite you to follow along as I read. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul knows for the church, in order to carry out faithfully, to faithfully carry out God's radical mission in the world, divine empowerment would be necessary in his own life. It would be necessary in the life of the church, and it would be necessary for the life of the world. And he knows that in order for this to happen, prayer must be at the center of the life of the church, at the center of the life of the believer. And so in verses 14 and 15, we pick up where Paul left off in chapter 3, verse 1. In fact, I want to draw your attention to that just quickly. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. He begins by saying, For this reason I, Paul, and he goes on, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He kind of goes on uh, on this, um, this excerpt from verses 2 through verse 13, or, or, or a digression where he starts to make a point, but then he goes off onto this other point that he makes. And then in verse 14, he comes back to the same point that he was about to make. And what was that point? The point was he was about to write out this prayer, convey or communicate this prayer that he's been praying for the church. In verse 14, for this reason, I, and he says, now I bow my knees before the Father. And he goes on, for, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul is speaking about praying. He's saying that he's bowing his knees before the Father. He bows for prayer in a humble posture. To kneel down and pray in Paul's day wasn't necessarily uh, the, the way that everyone prayed. Most people in Judaism would stand up to pray. But Paul says, here's what I do out of humble submission. I bow my knee before the Father. Paul models for us a bold yet humble approach before God. And notice he addresses his prayer to the Father. He says, I I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And in one sense, he's speaking about God as the one who is sovereign over all. He's speaking of the one who has created every person, every family, some say, some commentators even divided between this, whether or not this speaks about the fatherhood of God and God being kind of the prototype to show us what fatherhood is like, or whether this is this play on, on words between the word father and the word family between verses 14 and 15, where this is kind of a, a same or similar word sounding word, pater for father, patria for family, 
and these words sound really similar. And so some say that what Paul is pointing out here is that he's pointing to the family of God, the church, God's people. But regardless, what he is highlighting for us is that God is sovereign. He is creator over all. He is the sovereign one, the father over all people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says, the right way to approach God is to stretch out our hands and to ask of one who we know has the heart of a father. And this is what Paul is doing. He is coming to his father. And as he comes to his father, he is praying on behalf of the church. And I think from the beginning here, what we as a church need to see is this is this is what God is desiring for us as well. This is how we as a body of believers ought to be ministering to one another. Foundationally, we we need to be a people who are praying for one another. As Drew reminded us a few weeks ago to have intentional set times of prayer, right? This challenge continues. Don't give up on that. If you started, continue. Have these set times of prayer. But beyond that, have these set people that you are praying for. Pray for the church. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for those whom you're in home group with. Or pray for those whom you meet with account- for with accountability. Pray for those who you meet with for accountability, right? Pray for one another. Lift one another up. Because prayer is powerful and it matters that we would be in prayer for one another. Pray for those in our Sunday morning Bible study classes. And so Paul bows his knees before the Father, praying to God the Father. You know, one of the things that I've been learning through this Lenten season is the power and necessity for continuously being in prayer in my own life. It's impossible for the believer to resist temptation when he or she is not depending on God in prayer. In fact, there's a direct correlation between my nearness to God in prayer and my walk in holiness, just as there is a direct correlation between my distance from God in prayer and my walk in the flesh. We need to hear that. Believe that. Understand it. Wrap your mind around it. To the degree, church believer, that you are spending time coming before the Father in prayer is to the degree that you will be strengthened to guard against temptation. But to the degree that you walk away and do not come to God in prayer, you will be weak when walking and trying to guard against temptation. You see, it's through Paul's prayer for the believers in Ephesus that we too can learn how to pray for one another and how to pray for ourselves. And so first in verses 16 and 17, I want you to see that Paul begins by praying for divine empowerment. Divine empowerment. In verse 16, it actually begins with what's called a purpose clause or a in the Greek text, it's called a henna clause. There are three places that this word is used. It's used in verse 16. I know this is a little bit technical, but it's important for understanding the structure of the text. So look, in verse 16, you could write, so that. So we think about a reason, our purpose statement is, so that, here's the reason, right? And so in verse 16, it says, so that, in the text, so that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. A second time this clause is used is at the beginning of verse 18. 
And in essence, it would read, so that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And then the third place that this phrase is used or this clause is used is halfway through verse 19. It would read, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here are the three tiers of Paul's prayer. And the first one is a prayer for divine empowerment. Paul's prayer is first concerned with power for this new life the believers are experiencing Christ. So he's already seen, we've already seen how in chapter 2 this new creation has been made for the believers in the sense. He says in chapter 2 verse 10, right? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So God has created these these. People, he's given them new birth, new creation. So everyone who's born again in Christ has been made into a new creation. And this new creation, this is this masterpiece that we said. And what Paul here is praying for is that these people who are new creations in Christ would now be empowered, strengthened by the very power of God, by his presence. In fact, he, he's praying that God's power for believers would be realized because God's power for believers is limitless through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We see this here in verses 16 and 17. God's power for believers is limitless through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We begin by noting that God is both the source and the giver of strength for all who trust in him and all who turn to him in prayer. It's God alone who is able to empower the believer to live for him and to turn away from temptation. Look at what he says there in verse 16, halfway through. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You see, it's God who is the one that's granting that this would happen. It's God alone who is able, powerful, to strengthen the believer to live for him. And as the source, I want you to see that God's resources are unlimited. Look at what he says there in verse 16 at the beginning. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. This speaks to the certainty for the believer that the believer has that God is able. He is powerful and he is able to meet the needs of his children. His resources are vast. They are beyond our comprehension. They are immeasurable as we've seen already. They cannot be searched out or traced out. This is, these are the resources available for the, the believer. And so God's power for the believer is limitless through his indwelling Holy Spirit. So not only is God the limitless source, but he's the, he's the one who empowers the believer that he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. That is the Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer. This is the same spirit who in chapter 1 verse 17 imparts wisdom and revelation to believers. Enlightening us to live according to God's ways in our daily activities and in everything that we do. It's God's spirit that gives us wisdom and the understanding of his word. And as we pray for the spirit of wisdom, we also hear or seeing that we are to pray that we as believers would be strengthened with power from on high. And that through the indwelling presence and ministry 
of the Holy Spirit, we would receive this strengthening power to live for God. And look at where this all takes place for the believer. This all takes place in the inner being. You see that in verse 16. You'd be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What's this mean? The inner being, the inner man, the inner woman. What, what's he talking about here? Well, he's referring to the moral nature of the believer in Christ. It's the inner conscience of the man or the woman in Christ. This is the place where the decisions of, are, are, are weighed out. They're, they're made. This is where holiness is embraced in the life of the believer. This is where temptations are defeated and put to death. This is where the battle between the old man and the new man goes full force. And so Paul's praying that the inner man, the inner being, would be strengthened because of the Holy Spirit's dwelling and presence. Get this, church. Get this, believer. God has, God has given you of His Spirit that you would do this battle, this work against temptation, this work toward living in holiness, and that you would depend upon Him. And, and it's God who supplies limitless power in order for us to live in holiness and righteousness. In order for us to guard against temptation and pursuing the flesh. And it all takes place in the inner being. Look at chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Paul says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after likeness of God and true righteousness, right? And, and holiness, this is... This is what God is doing in the life of the believer by the indwelling spirit. This is how God, by his Holy Spirit, is working in your life, believer, to strengthen you and to empower you. This is what God is doing in our lives as we walk with him. So he is the one that can strengthen us to overcome temptation. He is the one who can strengthen us to overcome that besetting sin that we continue to walk in. But here's the key. It's directly connected. To us spending time in prayer before the Father. Paul knows this. That's why he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He continually goes to God the Father. You see, my walk with Christ, your walk with Christ, must be strengthened with power through prayer. If we're to live for the glory of God. Our lives are strengthened and empowered by the renewal of the Holy Spirit renewing our minds. And your walk with Christ and strength against temptation is directly proportionate to our nearness to God through prayer. Verse 17 clarifies exactly what he means in verse 16. In fact, this phrase has been, in recent times, it's kind of been debated hotly, uh, kind of out in, in, in the open squares of Christianity, in public Christianity today. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And as I reflected on this, this idea of Christ dwelling in our hearts, I, I think one of the things that we're seeing just in Christianity today is kind of this swing away from language such as ask Christ to come into your heart because whenever that phrase is thrown out, we've got to be careful that we don't miss the point of what Paul is saying here. And the point of what Paul is saying is not that Jesus knocks on the door of our heart and we open up and he comes in and makes his dwelling in there and everything's lovey-dovey. That's not the point. But the point that he's making here 
is it's a clarifying point of the Holy Spirit that dwells in the life of the believer. This is what God is doing in the life of his children. And this is what happens when we come to faith in Christ. Christ makes his dwelling within us. John 14, 23. He and the Father make their abode with us. And that happens through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so this clarifying statement that he's given us here clarifies the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It is by faith that we come to salvation in Christ. And when we do, the presence of the Holy Spirit is given in our lives and he guarantees our inheritance for eternity with the Father. And then Christ himself, his dwelling is with us. He It says his dwelling within our hearts through faith. In other words, the believer who is strengthened and indwelt by the spirit is a believer whom Christ has taken up residence. Christ then, here's the point, Christ then is at the center of that person's being. Christ then is at the center of that person's personality. He's at the center of our thoughts, of our will, of our emotions and so on. It means this, Christ has rule over this person. They've surrendered to the lordship of Christ. So that the more his spirit empowers our lives, the greater the transformation happens in our lives. And it transforms us into the likeness of Christ. I think many believers live in such a way that they miss the joy of this dynamic spiritual power in their lives. So many today live prayerless lives, relying on their own self-sufficiency when they have unlimited access to the creator of the universe. It's as if they find themselves in a pit and, and, and there's a ladder that's been lowered down to them, but they refuse to climb out by the ladder that's been given to them. You see, the point that Paul's making here is God's power for believers is limitless through the indwelling Holy Spirit. But not only do we see that God's power for believers is limited through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we need to see that Christ's love is the soil and foundation in which the believer's life grows. And I think he he points that out there in verse 17, so that you being rooted and grounded in love. This idea of being rooted and grounded in love, he uses two metaphors, two words, one botanical in a sense, plants, and uh, plants and, and being planted, another architectural, the, uh, the foundation image. So the love of Christ provides the, the, the motivating power enabling the believer to love others. That's what Paul is saying here. And in 1 John 4, 19, we, we read where John writes, we love because he first loved us. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, we read where Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, Christ's love is the soil of nourishment and flourishing in the believer's life. And what he's saying is when we abide in Christ's love, we grow as fruit-bearing branches. You know, I, I've got an avocado tree that was given to me. 
And I've wanted an avocado tree ever since uh, early on going to Uganda. I saw this huge avocado tree that I couldn't even put my arms around. We love avocados. And so I've, I've wanted to have one and wanted to grow one. But because of our climate, it's always been difficult. Uh, it, it is difficult to grow and to have one grow to be sustainable. And so I've got one in this big pot on the back, uh, back patio. And any time it gets really cold, I want to, uh, you know, I roll it in and I put it in my shop, uh, my garage. And uh, then I, I bring it back out when the sun gets, comes out and is shining bright because I, I really want this thing to grow and I really want it to flourish. In fact, I, I go out and I, I check on it, make sure it's doing okay. I talk to it a little bit. I'm just joking. I don't do that. But I monitor, you know, I want to make sure that the soil is healthy because if the tree is going to produce fruit one day, right, it's got to be in healthy soil. And I do all this because I want the the tree to produce good fruit. That's one of the important ingredients is this soil that it's that it's rooted in. And so it is for the believer's life. Our lives must be rooted in the soil of Christ's love. You see, when Christ takes up residence in the believer's life, the selfless love of Christ is the nourishment that leads to the believer's flourishing, that leads to the believer's maturity. Paul uses also an architectural word as well, the grounded. Grounded is a word for foundation. Jesus uses the same word in the Sermon on the Mount to speak about those who build their lives on him. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. This grounding, this founding, it's the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mountain. What Paul is saying here is that our lives must be grounded in the soil of Christ's love, founded upon the rock of who Christ is. And it's when we are grounded and and rooted in the love of Christ and founded upon the love of Christ that our lives then begin to give off this different radical flavor for Christ. So the question I would ask us to consider this morning is, is your life rooted in the soil of Christ's love? Is your life built upon the rock-solid foundation of Christ? Believer, are you living in such a way that divine empowerment from God through His Holy Spirit is present in your life for daily living? Are you overcoming the fleshly temptations to sin? Are you battling against them? are, Are you being renewed in the spirit of your mind? Are you seeking God through prayer? And power through prayer in your daily life. But not only do we see Paul model prayer for empowerment. We also see him model prayer for divine knowledge in verses 18 and 19. In verses 18 and 19 it says. So that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The ocean is a pretty vast place. In fact, we often break the ocean into five large ocean basins. 
The ocean covers 71% of the Earth's surface, and it holds 1.3 billion cubic kilometers of water. The average depth of the ocean is 12,100 feet. That's roughly 2.3 miles. The massive space of the ocean also holds the world's largest mountain range, and it also holds the world's deepest canyon known to man. And that deepest canyon is in the Mariana Trench. That trench is 1,580 miles long, and on average it's 43 miles across. But the deepest part of the ocean is located at the southern end of the trench called the Challenger Deep. And it's approximately 36,200 feet deep. That's roughly 6.831 miles deep. It's incredible, isn't it? We could go on and on and on about the mystery of the ocean, the things that we know and and the things that have been discovered through research. We know a lot about the ocean, but for all that we know, there's a vast amount of ocean that remains uncharted. Its depths are unsearchable. This is really kind of the point that Paul is making when he begins talking here about the love of Christ. There are a lot of things that we know about the love of Christ But its depths are unsearchable. Paul's somewhat paradoxical in his prayer here in verses 18 and 19. He prays for them to have strength to comprehend the love of Christ in a way that surpasses knowledge. That they would know the love of Christ in a way that surpasses knowledge. One of the points that Paul is making is that the love of Christ is too large to be confined to any dimensional measurement and so Paul's prayer his prayer for divine knowledge is that they would grow in understanding of the matchless love of Christ we see that in verse 18 to grow in understanding of the matchless love of Christ these dimensions of Christ's love the width and the length and the height and the depth Paul's desire for the church is that they would grasp they would literally hold on as their own to this love of Christ which has been exemplified for them in their coming to faith and the unmerited salvation that Christ has given them and has given to each one of us. And so this love of Christ, though, it's really too large to be confined to any dimensional measurements. That's why he says that that we would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. In other words, it's wide enough to reach the whole world and beyond. The love of Christ is long enough to stretch from eternity past to eternity future. It's high enough to raise both Gentiles and Jews to the heavenly places in Christ in one thirteen in chapter 2, verse 6. It's deep enough to rescue people from the depths of sin and even from the grip of Satan himself. The love of Christ is the love that he has for the church as a united body and for all those who trust in him. So this love of Christ, Paul is praying that the church would be gripped by it and come to an understanding of this matchless love of Christ, that there's no other love that is as great as the love of Christ for the believer, a love that would send Christ to the cross to die so that he might pay for our sin, And give us eternal life. 
But not only that the church would grow in understanding of the matchless love of Christ, but Paul's prayer was that they would grow in maturity under the matchless love of Christ. We see this in verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, this occurs in connection with the local church. In verse 18, he had prayed that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. This is with all the people of God, with God's people. And see, growing in maturity under the matchless love of Christ doesn't happen outside of the church. Instead, it must happen in connection with the church. God has ordained it this way. That's why we can look down in chapter 4, verse 13. It says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, verse 14, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You see, God's design for your maturity, believer, is even that you would be connected and plugged in with the church, with the body of Christ. To know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ A person must be connected to the local body of Christ. In the maturity, the maturing of the believer will occur as he or she is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and grows in knowledge through the presence of Christ in his or her life. So if the believer has Christ dwelling in him or in her, they will know the love of Christ in a way that surpasses knowledge. And this is a work that only God can do in our lives. This is a work that comes through knowing Christ. It's a work that God does through his spirit in our lives. Because the Holy Spirit strengthens our inner being so that we might know the love of Christ in a way that surpasses the boundaries of knowledge and leads us to the fullness of God. What's the point? What's the point of knowing the dimensions of Christ's love and growing in strength in what is unknowable? Well, I think that leads to the climax of Paul's prayer. And the climax is found in the last part of verse 19, where he says, so that, should read, so that you will be filled with the fullness of God. This is the reason so that you would be filled with the fullness of God. Paul prays for divine fullness for the church. That they would be filled with the fullness of God, that as believers who are, new, who are a new humanity, Paul's desire for them as a church and as individual believers is that their lives would be so consumed with the love of Christ and so directed by the Holy Spirit that they would be centered in Christ. And Paul's praying that they'll be given divine empowerment by God only as he can give and that they would be engaged in God's mission of exemplifying the love of Christ to the world. So here's the question. What does it mean for you and I to be filled with the fullness of God? Here's what it means. It means that our lives, our minds, it means that our minds would be saturated with God's word and that our lives would be filled with God's presence so that we're, we're aware of how he's working 
in and through and around us. It means that our minds are saturated with God's word and our lives are filled with God's presence so that we're aware of his working in and through and around us. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we're to be sensitive to his prompting. We're to walk in complete dependence on God so that our strength is from on high. It's from him. And as we grow in maturity in Christ, we grow into head. And as we grow into the head, Christ. And as we grow in maturity in Christ, we grow together in unity as one body. You see, Paul's view of the church and the importance of the church comes into play here. The believer doesn't grow in spiritual maturity in a spiritual vacuum. It happens in connection with the church and the body of Christ. It happens as we're engaging and using our spiritual gifts to serve one another. It happens as we're interceding on behalf of one another, praying for one another, asking for God to empower his people, praying that we would each know the love of Christ in a new and deeper way, and that we would be plummeting the depths of that which is unsearchable, knowing the love of Christ in a tremendous way. It means that our lives are directed in accordance with his presence and his power and his calling. This ought to be our prayer for our congregation and for our own lives. That God would empower us, the church, to carry out his mission. To show Christ's love to the world. And finally, Paul ends in verses 20 and 21 this prayer with a doxology. And he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. As we look at this section, he ends by saying, to God be the glory. I want you to know something about the believer coming to God in prayer. And that's this, our prayers cannot go beyond God's ability. Don't think you can pray beyond God's ability to act. God's sovereign. God's all-powerful. God can work in the midst of even the most difficult circumstances where you and I see no possible way. God can do works of healing in lives of people who seem like they're at the brink of death. God can work in such powerful and profound ways that we see even at the end that we can't begin to even think or imagine how God will work. And so our prayers cannot go beyond God's ability. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, it's according to his power at work within us, but this power of God, he is ready and he is waiting for his children to come to him in prayer. Ask him to do great works in the midst of this city. Ask him to do great works in the, people, in, in the lives of the people that we work with. Ask him to do great works in the midst of our families. Ask him to do this great work in such a way that he would get the credit and he would get the glory for it. Not you and I. See, sometimes I think we don't give God the opportunity to exercise his power in our lives because we're just not bold enough in prayer. And God's calling us. Paul is reminding us that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask, can ask, or think. Our prayers cannot go beyond God's ability. 
But secondly, look, it's according to the power at work within us. This is God's power at work within us. By His Spirit, He works within us. And His power is at work in the life of His people. And it's God's power at work in your life in order to do this work for His glory and for our good. So we should not doubt God's hand and that we can come to God in prayer. As he says in verse, thir- verse 12, in whom we have, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have boldness and we are to come to God boldly but humbly as Paul demonstrates and models. So it's to God be the glory. Our prayers cannot go beyond God's ability. And secondly, the church is meant to showcase God's glory in the world. I want you to see this in verse 21. He says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. We know how God's glory has been demonstrated in the person and work of Christ. Christ coming incarnate into the world, the God becoming flesh. But even more so, at the consummation of the ages when Christ returns, God's glory will be manifested in the person of the, in the work of Christ. But in this in-between time, from Christ incarnation to Christ's return, there is the church and God is the one who is to get glory and to be showcased to the world through the church. It's through the ministry of the church. It's through you and I engaging and serving one another and loving on one another and praying for each other and exercising the giftedness that he has given us graciously in doing this work. This is how God is glorified in the world. They will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And churches, we continue to love one another and pray for one another and lift each other up and walk together through difficulties, through, through mountains and through valleys. As we walk through times together and hold one another up, this displays the love of Christ to the world and it's efficacious. It has this wonderful effect of drawing others to Christ. And as we do this, we will have opportunity to give a defense for the hope of the gospel. We will use our words to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And we will see the lives of other people transformed because God is at work in and through us. So church, let us be a people who experience power through prayer. Let us be a people who unashamedly come before God in bold ways and in big ways and ask God to do great works in the midst of our lives, through us, and in this city and throughout the world. Let us be that kind of church. Let us be a church that showcases God's glory. Let me pray for us. Father, We, we want to be this kind of church that showcases your glory in the world. We want to be these kind of believers who, who walk with you, who experience the empowerment of your spirit, who have the inner man strengthened so that we can battle against temptation in the flesh so that we can grow in holiness. Father, we want to be these kind of believers who grasp in deeper ways the love of Christ and then we're able to share that love of Christ with others because we have been gripped so thoroughly by it. 
Lord, we want to be these kind of believers who are filled with the fullness of Christ. So as we go out into the world, we, we hear from you and we're sensitive to your spirit and, and we obey as you call, we go as you lead. And so, Father, we ask you this morning that you would, in fact, do what Paul is praying, strengthen us from on high. Would you empower us by your spirit? Lord, for your glory, would you do this work in each of our lives? God, would you strengthen us to love you more than we love the sin that we might be entangled in? God, would you strengthen us to run this race with endurance and to stay, to stay steady, to stay near? Would you draw us near by your Holy Spirit? Would you keep us near your presence? Would you make us more aware of your indwelling Holy Spirit's presence and the power through the riches of your grace. And so, Lord, would you do this for, not just for our good, God, but for your glory, for your glory to be made known throughout the world, throughout this community, throughout this city. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.